Welcome to the Center Church Dubai. We are a church built and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ours is the story of a faithful God who saved imperfect people by His grace, united them by the love of Christ, and sent them out to bring many more to Him. Thanks for joining us. So I was thinking through the series that we've been, de- we've been doing as a church, about a short five-part series, uh, and not that we want the prayers, that we don't want it to be just a series of things that we understand, but we want that series actually to be a life experience as well. And for some of you who may not have been here or you've forgotten what the series is, just to quickly remind you, we looked at what the bad news is first, and we looked at how our hearts have absolutely no hope outside of God's grace, and then we looked at the good news on how God's incredible rich grace is our only hope and our assuring hope. And then, after looking at the bad news and the good news, we've been looking at the effect of that gospel. Okay, so if we really are Christians and we've embraced the good news, what should that Christian life look like? And so we're trying to, the framework within which we're thinking through what the effect of the gospel is, uh, the Lord's resurrection, the Lord's atoning sacrifice, and the Lord's incarnation. And so, how we're thinking through this, what we looked at last week is how the Lord rose and therefore he's gone and we are already seated with him in heavenly realms. And so this already not yet aspect shapes our choices that we make on this side because we know where we're going to be, we know what we're called to and therefore how we should live today. So that's the forward back aspect. And this week we're looking at the inside out aspect which is if Christ died and his atoning sacrifice has done something for us already, how should that shape our obedience? How should that shape an inside-out transformation in our lives? And the next week, we look at the upside-down effect, which is again about the Lord's incarnation. If, if God himself, Christ came down, and he became the least amongst all, how does that, and then he was exalted, how does that reversal of values that he shows us, how does that shape our life on this side of eternity? And so that's, the, that's a series that we're doing, and I think most people, at least in a church setting, would relate to uh, the bad news, it's inescapable, we've all born in sin, and then the good news as well, saying I understand what Christ has done for me and this is where I am today. But quite sadly, what happens after that, a natural outcome or an effect of that good news is often not seen as fruits or not often something that we really cherish. And we acknowledge there seems to be a struggle there, isn't it? When it comes to this forward, back, inside out, and what our lives are like today. And when you think through the reason for that, quite often, almost often, it is because we haven't actually understood the gospel. The richness of it and what God is telling us has not been fully understood sometimes in our hearts. And I can think through my life, and I was thinking through how that was true for me, and some of you might relate to this. So I clearly would be able to relate to the part of my life where I knew it was bad news, Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, and an inability to sort of change yourself is living in sin. That's the bad news. And then I can relate to the good news. But when I think of the good news, I can't think of a specific time when I heard God's word, and that's the day when I experienced new birth. I don't have a specific day and an instant in how that happened. But I, I know there were several moments, especially during my youth, when I kept hearing the good news, I heard God's word, and there'll be a strong conviction on your heart you, you want to respond, your tone within your heart, knowing what kind of a life you're living and what kind of a life you ought to live. And there'd be a series of things that happened after that. And when I reviewed that phase of my life, probably the worst ever, there was a constant going in circles. I know the good news, I know what he's called me to, but no freedom from sin. 
a constant backsliding, constant failure. And when I look back at it now, having understood what the good news is, not that we're perfect now, but I'm able to see one of the core problems. I don't know whether you've seen this in your lives. So I'll use a little instance as an example. So we went for a, a youth camp, uh, maybe in our early teens, and at that point, we were pretty clearly convicted on something, a lot of us, and we said, we can't live like this anymore. And so I remember some of us getting into uh, a series of decisions that we wanted to take, and so a friend of mine, Johan, and I said, we gotta do this, and we became accountability partners. Now in those days, accountability partners were pretty easy. Uh, you don't take six months to disclose your uh, sin. Uh, I think because you just knew each other pretty well, right? We weren't living in silos. So we knew, we really didn't need accountability. We knew how messed up we were. So it was pretty easy to start off. And so we took a decision saying, one of the things we lack is we don't spend uh, quiet time. We don't give God's word the attention. We got to read this systematically. And we said, we're going to wake up early. And so we said, 5 a.m., we're going to get up. It's pretty unearthly hour in those days. Uh, and we, we're going we're gonna to really keep this going and read God's word. So we said every alternate day, one of us would call the other person up, wake the other person up on the phone, and then so we could keep our commitment going. And that went on for some time, for many weeks. And quite a few weeks later, when we went for another Bible study, we were convicted again. And this time, there was again some sort of synergy in our convictions. We actually realized... Uh, that in a secular way we were good friends but not really Christian friends. So what we would do is every day we would call each other up and when we confess this to one another, we would set our alarm for five o'clock, call the other person and go back to sleep. So I would do that for him and he would do that for me. There was some kind of pressure, you know, we're Christians, we've got this commitment. I, I didn't want to make it look like I wasn't living up to it and he was doing the same and we didn't go anywhere with this. And you see, there were a whole lot of genuine changes and choices and resolutions that we made, but it did not actually bring any change in our hearts. And when I look back and I think of that period, I think in my mind it was, it was not just about him, but in hindsight, I wanted to become a better Christian because I wanted to be accepted in that Christian youth fellowship that I was in at that time. And so there was a certain vibe in that fellowship and I wanted to fit in. I didn't want to feel like the outlier. And so in my mind, the way out of this sin and shame and this identity that was obvious was to be accepted by God. And logically, I don't know if that appeals to you, if, if I'm accepted by God, then everybody's going to accept me as well. And what better way to do that except to now get serious on a set of spiritual disciplines? And if that sounds right to you, then there's a serious problem, right? And we'll see that as we go along through the sermon. Because... I realized when I look back that that was at best a religious effort. And a whole lot of choices that I met actually kept me going in circles. And today I want us to see through this text that if there's an external sort of a righteousness or if there's something that motivates you which is about yourself and how you want to be perceived, and even if that is a godly pursuit, it's not going to take us anywhere. Because religious external righteousness is going to keep us in shame and sin and guilt forever. But the gospel, which is the opposite of that, is able to bring an inside-out transformation. That's what I want us to focus on. And I, the text that I've chosen is what was read to you. Uh, it was a little part of a big sermon, a sermon on the mount. We had, I think, verses 13 to 20 read. Uh, and I urge some of you to read the whole sermon on the mount, which is chapters 5, 6, and 7. But even if you haven't, I trust you're familiar with it because the broader context helps us understand what this is. So the three points that I have for us today, one will be to see what kind of people, the second will be what kind of motives, and the third, what kind of hope. 
And I picked those because all those three are critical to this desire for us to be a gospel-centered community. Why? What kind of people? Because when you first come into a church, that's the impression, isn't it? What, what, you, you meet people, you get to know people, and how you're welcome, that, that, those are your first impressions. And not just in the beginning, even for a long time. And all of us have been new visitors to some church at some point in time. And when you come, at least most often, you're typically greeted with a lot of hospitality and love, and that goes well. But only after some time, you really get to see the people behind that. You really wonder what all the initial enthusiasm was about. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it lets you down. And that slowly, when you build relationships, shows you what kind of people are these, because what kind of motives did they really have? Was it about them coming and being enthusiastic and, present, and preserving something that they want you to see? Or did they really care for you? And so that kind of motive then leads on for what kind of hope all of us have. Because that determines whether we're a community or a church that is shaped by God's grace and that is fueled by, this, by, you know, by what gospel centrality means or is it just a lot of pious people who have embraced religion and who want to have certain standards but that's not going to go too far. And so to keep that in mind, the first one that I want us to unpack is what kind of people? What kind of people was Jesus ministering to at that time? And we think, one easy way to think of it is the majority when he came to Israel, the majority response was rejection. So we think of why, what kind of people rejected him, you might get the answer. So if somebody asked you who killed Jesus, what would come to your mind? Maybe you're thinking Jews, Romans, but that's just ethnicity and nationality. But what kind of people were they? And I think the Bible has the answer for us. Because repeatedly Jesus would refer to those people, right? Like, it's in all the Gospels, but to give you one, in Matthew 16, 21, he would say, I tell you, I'm going to be handed over and be killed by the Pharisees, the elders, the teachers of the law, and the chief priests. You put all those together, what kind of people were they? Religious people. Religion is the enemy of the gospel. There's something about religion that is actually opposed to the gospel. I heard that sometime back and it made so much sense. And so I want us to get a little deeper understanding of what the mindset of those people are. And if we understand this, we won't just be able to relate to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see something in the Sermon on the Mount that we typically oversee, that we usually might not see. That's one. And secondly, when we see their mindset, you might be able to relate to it as well. Whether you still operate in some sense with a religious framework even today. And so to see that, it's not that visible in this text. I'm going to move us from the mountain slope where the sermon is going on for just a bit to the plains where Jesus was walking. Now, you can turn to the text. I'm not going to spell out the details or you can just listen to me. This is Matthew 12. You can look it up later where Jesus is in the rice fields now. And he's going on a Sabbath day, walking with his disciples, and they begin to pluck grains of rice and eat it. And as they're doing that, you know what happens? The Pharisees come, and the Pharisees are constantly following them with one goal. They have to punch some sort of flaws in these people, especially in their leader. And so they come up there, and they make a statement in Matthew 12 saying, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on Sabbath. Now, you know what Sabbath was about? This was, this was important. The Jews took it very seriously. This was the seventh day. Um, was this just a religious custom? No, it was ordained by God. Just like in Genesis, six days and God ceased from all his work. And he invites his people into that rest. He says, I want you to cease from all your work. I want you to delight in me. And so they kept this 
And this law actually, in a sense, was unique between Israel and God. You know, in the Ten Commandments, nine of them are moral commandments. You love God, you love people. And then in between that, you have one that is sort of a ceremonial commandment, this one. Right? And it did point to some moral aspects. So the Pharisees were very strict about this, and Jesus honored this, and his disciples did as well. But at that point in time, the Pharisees, they had sort of completely taken the Sabbath to a different level. They put a whole lot of rules and traditions, and in fact, it became probably the heaviest day. It was supposed to be a day where you rested. But I think if you, if you followed, if you were there at that time, and you tried to do everything the Pharisees did, you'd be even more exhausted than a working day. Now, this was not from the Bible. They just went about a whole lot of customs. Let me give you an example to give you a feel of what Sabbath would have been like. So this is just a few things from hundreds that they added. So if you threw an object up in the air, if you caught it with your same hand, you have not violated the Sabbath. But if you caught it with the other hand or with both hands, you did. As a whole lot of ridiculous ones, I picked some of them. You couldn't carry a needle on Sabbath because you had an intention to stitch. If you're a student, you couldn't carry books around because you have an intention to study. I would have liked to be a kid around at those times. If you were a woman, you couldn't look in a glass because she might see a gray hair and pluck it out. Some of you might have stayed indoors on Sabbath, lest somebody discover your real age. If there was a lit candle, you couldn't blow it out. And there's a huge list like this, but can you see what the mindset was like? Now you might say, that's ridiculous, but here are two observations that we still might carry today. One, if commandments feel burdensome, then you've embraced a religion. Religion can make commandments feel like they're burdensome. How do, how do you feel about commandments when you read moral laws in the Bible? That's one. And the second one is, if you're living in a religious framework, then you will tend always to place some sort of moral boundaries or some sort of boundary markers which are really anchored not on God's word, but on customs or on traditions, but they make you feel like you're set apart. But they're really not moral laws, but they have no meaning and they have no value. Maybe you do that. I know a lot of people, I tend to do that and everybody I meet does that, irrespective of what culture and what generation you're in. I'll give you a few examples to see whether you do this. So for example, you cannot color your hair green. That's not from the Bible. But largely, looking at the ethnicity here and where you come from, that's probably a no-go in your house. You can't color your hair green over my dead body. Now, now, let me just say something before I go anywhere with this. I'm not trying to say this. I'm not really concerned about green, red, or black hair to that to that sense, but I want us to think of what lies in our head when we think of these things and what, how we think about this and whether it's shaped from our hearts and whether this is shaped by an inside-out reaction to what, what God is teaching us to be or not. So you keep that in mind. So whether you're Gen Z or Gen Mill or whether you're from the Middle Ages, it doesn't matter. You have to really ask yourself, how do I think about inside transformation when it comes to this? So you can't color your hair green, but plenty of people can color it black. That's pretty weird. You can't pierce yourself. You can't have a tattoo. Because why? Because you're going to pierce your body. But hey, it's, we've got a dispensation to pierce our earlobes. In fact, once, twice, thrice, and even our nose sometimes. And there's a whole lot of things like that. Now, I know I'm saying this, and I'm conscious of a risk that some of you might leave from here, especially younger people, and quote this completely out of context. And you can go home and say, I told you. 
Now I'm going to pierce a hole that's five times bigger and hang an object that's massive on it. And you're probably saying, ah, that's ridiculous. But it wasn't. Because I've seen a lot of old people when I was a kid with massive objects hanging and the earlobes actually look like donuts. <laughs> Some of you have seen that. But it didn't matter. They were just traditional people at that time. And so when you think of all that and you realize, and you're probably wondering where I'm going with this, especially parents, but I'll tell you what my fear is. More than actually being concerned about how younger people or older people will react, I actually am scared about the damage that religion can do to you. Because one out of every second person at some point in their lives wants to leave home. Why? Naturally, because you want to feel independent. But a lot of them want to leave because they want freedom from religion. You see, it's because they haven't tasted the love of God. The gospel has not been clearly articulated to them. And you all might be victims of that in some sense as well. There's no meaning and joy in this. Now, I am not appealing to culture. I'm not suggesting we do what culture around you dictates. And but at the same time, I want us to realize if there's some sort of an external righteousness that we're trying to appeal to, it is actually an enemy of the gospel. It is not going to bring true transformation inside your heart. And that's the picture I want you to keep. Now, the externals do matter. Expressions matter. We want to be sensitive. Because people are going to look at your lives and make conclusions on several things. But how are we going to find what that balance is? Unless the gospel is at the center, how will you find this balance of that I will appreciate in the culture and that I will criticize? Not criticize everything and not appreciate anything. How do we find that balance? And even if the Bible is not prescriptive, I think there's enough, there's a beautiful framework when we think of what the gospel is that helps us make these choices. And if you do, and if it's Christ living in your hearts, and you really know what your needs are, and if that on the inside is met, then your external manifestations will be very easy. In fact, there'll be a lot of inward simplicity, which all of us like to some degree, isn't it? So it's every generation struggle in some sense. And so, just a little more time on those, uh, on those fields in the, where Jesus is walking with the disciples. I just want us to think of the response when the, when the Pharisees call out saying, look at what they're doing, they violated this. Traditionally, it's not accepted at all. It's taboo. And he actually tells them in Matthew 12, 3, have you not read? And I love that because in some sense, he's pointing them back to Scripture and he's not trying to tell them, look, I've come. This is a new covenant. It's the time to be absolutely cool. No more laws, boys. That's not what he's saying. But he actually points them back to Scripture. That's the answer for them then and that's the answer for us now. But it has to be based out of Scripture. And when you look at it, what's the example he gives them? I don't know how the Pharisees digested that. He said, do you remember David, what he did? Now, David was huge in terms of a patriarch. He walked into the temple, and when he and his friends were hungry, what did they do? They ate the consecrated bread. That was, that was just not acceptable. It was only for the high priest, and that was sacred. I don't know what the equivalent of that is today. Maybe you walk into a very traditional church. At the end of the Passover, you go there, and you tell the priest you've been fasting for two days, you've been waiting for this moment. You take that bread and you drink all the wine that's left over. It won't be the Passover, but the priest typically would have passed out if he saw that. But I'm not suggesting we do that. I'm not suggesting there's anything sacred about it. But how did David get away from this? How come he was excused? What was Jesus trying to point them to? He was trying to show them through this example over here that God didn't place these laws over here to make your life miserable. 
He actually placed laws there so you could delight in him and his need, he wanted your needs to be met. And so in this case, a ceremonial law took a back seat because he had a specific need that he saw and he cared for David and his companions. That's what's going on there. By the way, this is not a moral law. Nowhere do we see God violating his moral laws. But you can see the ceremonial law here takes a back seat because at the heart of this, what's the goal? God wants you to see his nature through all these laws that he's loving and he's merciful and his goodness must thrive. And that's one way of looking at it, isn't it? And that's in the Old Testament, by the way. Some of us still live as if we've predated even the Old Testament. And I've seen that as, as I've grown up. Oh, it's a Sabbath. You can't eat. You can't play. You can't do a whole lot of things. You can eat only this kind of food. And I, a lot of kids couldn't make any sense of it. It became the, a day that they dreaded. That's not really drawing us to what the intention is because a Sabbath is made for man, not man for Sabbath. How are people going to truly delight and find joy in the Sabbath? And that is something that we have to think of. So he's telling the, the Pharisees in a sense over here, stop lurking around in the shadows. This ceremonial system is pointing to something beyond itself. It's pointing to God who loves you and who cares for you and it's about his goodness and that must be something you cherish on the inside but you are stuck with the externals. Now keep that thought in mind and if that's the mindset that prevailed then, then when you get to the Sermon on the Mount, you might see something that we typically overlook. So you get to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. Now I'm going to call out how that sermon ends. If you remember, 5, 6, 7, at the end of it, you remember, there are two trees some bear bad fruit and some bear good fruit. There are two parts. One is broad and one is narrow. There are two kinds of houses. One is built on sand, it'll collapse, and one is built on the rock. And we conclude when we look at all that saying, oh, there's two kinds of people here, some who obey the Lord and some who do not. And that's a fair conclusion to a degree, but when you read the sermon carefully, nowhere is he showing you two kinds of people in that sense. He doesn't say... Here are people who murder and people who do not. Here are people who commit adultery. Here are people who do not. Or think of the examples in Matthew 6. Here are people who pray and people who don't pray. Here are people who give, people who don't give. He never says that. He actually speaks the entire crowd there that he's speaking to are people who are praying, fasting, and giving. They're all doing this. Yet he tells them there are two kinds of trees and two kinds of houses and two kinds of paths. Do you see what's going on? Because the concern that he had was that these people were doing all this, but they were righteous acts. They were externally going on the right path. But the broad road that Israel chose was religion. The narrow road actually required, was, had a higher standard. It's not just adultery. It's looking lustfully. The, the house that they built that was going to collapse on sand, religion is sand. But true obedience is going to come only when you really realize what the Spirit of the law meant on the inside. That's what they lacked. And you have to ask yourself whether that's how you think of your choices too. So then if that's the kind of people that existed then, and if that's how we might sometimes think today, I want to move on to our next point where Jesus focuses on what kind of motives. What kind of motives? Think of the opening verses in the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't read the Beatitudes, but you had the words read soon after that, isn't it? Verse 13 to 15. You are salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. What do those analogies represent? 
We know salt in those days had two purposes. One, it was used as a preservative. So here are the Beatitudes. Here's how a Christian should live. Here's how life in the kingdom should be. In contrast to that, preserve this, cherish this. And salt also, like today, was meant to add flavor to food. That, that was the purpose of salt. So for example, if you went to a restaurant, on, a, on, on the weekend you went to a really good Italian restaurant and you had some food, and at the end of it the waiter came by and said, how was the food, sir? And you said, your salt was really good. You stop going to restaurants, you need to go for some counseling classes then, isn't it? We don't talk like that. Salt exists to flavor the rest of the food. What does that look like in our Christian life then? If you're involved in some sort of serving, encouraging, kids ministry, youth ministry, teaching people, worship, doing some sort of a Bible study, one-on-one -on -one evangelism, whatever it is, at the end of that, if those people that you're serving say, who is this God? I want to know more about him. Or I want to dig deeper into God's word. Then that's a mark that you've been salt. Because you have added flavor to your life and you're existing for the purpose of others. It's not about you. But in that, if you're desirous, I want you to know I'm a very knowledgeable person when it comes to scriptures. <coughs> That's not being salt. What are they going to gain with that? Oh, he knows so much about scriptures. At best, they're going to be jealous or they're going to just take everything that you say after that. Or I want you to know I'm a very merciful and a righteous person. I'm, I've got a very gentle spirit. Whatever it is, that is not being salt. The goal of this is that you don't want to draw attention to yourself and you don't want to be in the limelight. But if things that you draw are slowly about you being in the limelight, then that's not the kind of light over here that the Lord is describing because he says salt and then he says you are light of the world. But what kind of a light? You ought to be a lamp that's not hidden under a bowl but a lamp that's kept on a stand. Which one are you? A lamp that's hidden, you know, that people who want to be in the limelight actually are people who hide their true colors. It's a lamp that is hidden away in a bowl. I will not show you what I really am, but when it comes to a chance to, be, to become popular, to show you I'm a nice guy, I'll put it out there. But otherwise, I'm secluded. You really never get to see the real me. That's not being a lamp on a bowl. And when you're like that, you've lost the whole purpose because why does salt and light exist? To point other people to God. That's what the next verse says. So they'll see your deeds. They'll see that it's not about you and they'll realize, oh, this is your father. And so that's the point of this. And so when you think of this and you say, well, that's what a church should be like when people come and they look at the Beatitudes. And I see so much of mercy. I see peacemakers. But quite often that's a rare sight, isn't it? What should we do then about this actual righteousness that should be on the inside and not merely on the outside? And when you read on, the next verse, let me read this. This was read to you in Matthew 5, 17. The Lord doesn't say, a law is a problem, it's too steep, drop it. No, he actually says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on in verse 20, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How are they supposed to understand this? I mean, the Pharisees already were. Imagine adding some more rules, becoming more righteous than a Pharisee. They went to every dot and letter of the law. But Jesus goes on to explain, saying, I want you to surpass that. And then he gives you a series of examples, about six examples we're not going to go through them. But you remember what's at the heart of those examples. You thought it was about murder? No, no, no. 
If you have ill feeling, if you hate someone, if you call someone a fool, you've committed murder. You thought it was adultery, you just need to look lustfully. So he steps this up and he says, it's, you're, you're keeping the letter of the law, but you're missing the spirit of the law. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And you think of that and you ask yourself saying, is that how I make my choices? Is it really on the inside or am I conforming to what people need to see and I'm worried about it? Really making you a slave to sin. Think of adultery. Why is it a Christian ethic that you cannot have sex outside of marriage? Or you cannot have premarital sex and youngsters would say, like, what's the reason? And here's what a pastor said, and I wrote this down for myself. Because at the heart of the commandment, he says, people today claim they want to express their love for one another physically outside marriage. What they actually want is physical nakedness externally and a desire to become vulnerable. But they don't want marriage. They don't want to give up their independence. They don't want to back it up with actual personal vulnerability and nakedness. So no commitments here. This is the best way to go about it. And that's lust. That kind of love is lust at its best. And God says, even, when, even if that's just a thought, even if you fantasize, you're an adulterer. Now Jesus wanted them to see that the Pharisees were just a pious bunch of people. They didn't actually get to understand what's going on deep in their hearts. And this didn't change. Decades later, we see this again and again when the letter is going out of the New Testament. For example, Paul writes to the church at Colossae many decades later and he tells them, you can go back and look at Colossians 2, 21 onwards. You've got all these rules. You've got Sabbath. You've got these special festivals. You have do not touch, do not taste. You've got all of that. What is this doing for you? It's not, it's, it's not helping you refrain. It's not helping you with your sensual indulgence on the inside. And many years later, even today, you have to ask yourself, how is this helping me? Am I, in some sense, keeping a whole lot of discipline for years, but I'm actually unable to overcome my sin on the outside? I've managed to do a few things externally, but the same category of sin seems to be lurking in my heart. And so I want to ask you whether you struggle with a Pharisee-like symptom, which could be you go for a retreat, you go for a Bible study, and after a series of that, you're a little convicted saying, oh, everybody here is speaking of a certain kind of a value system. That seems to be what everybody cherishes, and now I better hop onto that bandwagon. If not, I will not be accepted. Now, that's a default mindset. So, for example, you go for a series of sermons. We've done that in church, and it's in your Bible studies. Here's how you deal with money. And you say, oh, everybody seems to talk about money in a certain manner. And so you go about doing a few things, but you rearrange a few things externally in your life, but it doesn't change anything. On the, you're just sensitive on the outside on what people see, but your heart still struggles with it. Now, I'm not saying externals don't matter, but I'm asking you whether it's inside out. Or you see a whole lot of people now understanding and articulating scripture is much better and their knowledge is on the rise and you want to desperately get there too. And so you study scriptures with a lot more heart and soul put into it, but it's really not your heart. Because there's no heart change. You've just grown in your knowledge of scriptures. And you can be a slave to things thinking that you're becoming better in your walk while inside-out change is not happening. And so then what kind of hope? If that's the kind of people, that's the kind of motives, what kind of hope do we have, which is our last point? When you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you notice two things. 
on one hand, when you read it carefully, every time you read it, you almost feel like, oh, this, my life is so distant from this. You can stop at the Beatitudes and say, I'm not like this, Lord. I feel so distant. But at the same time, when you keep reading, you actually are drawn to this because there's something that you see over there. You notice, as much as it's distant from an inner reality, the call to enter the kingdom of heaven is so steep, it's thinking lustfully, it's about becoming angry to people, but when you observe carefully, what Jesus is actually saying is, the only way you can live like this is if God is your father. The only way you can actually live like this is if God is your father. How? For example, do not be anxious. How else would you keep that commandment? If you're somebody who kept it externally, when you go to Matthew 6, 35, do not be anxious, what are you going to do? Take a deep breath and say, don't be anxious. Well, good luck with that. But the appeal over there is, there's a father who cares for you. All your needs are met. Or oh, love people who hate you. Why? Look at how the father deals with ungrateful people. And so that's ingrained throughout the Sermon on the Mount. There's one word that is repeated 17 times. And I put it out on a slide so you and I can see it. So when you look at the slide that's up on the screen, you will see, now this is not a full-blown exegetical, don't grade me on your theological minds of here. This is just to show you, here are some critical aspects that are there in the Sermon on the Mount. What do you see there? You see, in the beginning, the Beatitudes, and you see, you've got to be salt and light, and those are two illustrations of your purpose. And then you have a call to surpass this righteousness. This is what true righteousness, you have six examples of what that should look like. And then you have three examples after that of what your motives on the inside are. And then you have two commandments there, two critical ones. Here's how you deal with people and relationships. Here's how you deal with anxiety in your life. And then you have two kinds of people and how it concludes. Three illustrations, remember? Two trees, two houses, two paths. And now look at how all of them, all the critical components actually have the word father, your father alongside each of them. Because when you think of the first one, oh, I've got to be salt and light. And immediately after that, he says, what's the purpose? When you live like this, people will see your father and they will glorify him. When you think of the next one and you say, oh, there's, this is how, these are six examples. These are so steep, Lord. How am I, for example, in the last one, going to love my enemies? Think of who your father is. Aren't you his son? Isn't he kind and ungrateful to the wicked? And then he goes on to the next one. Three examples on your motives. Are you concerned about what people think about you? Here's what you should actually think of. And then he gives you two commandments. And in both those commandments, don't be anxious because there's a father who cares for you. And here's how you avoid judging people and how you love people. Here's how you keep the golden rule. As a father, ask him and he will help you and he'll give you his spirit. That's at the heart of this whole thing. So you can you realize, oh, I can live like this. I can follow what's in the Sermon on the Mount if God is my father. Now, I hope you're not sitting there concluding in your mind saying, oh, in a generic sense, God is, God is my father. He's everybody's father, isn't it? Now, Jesus is not trying to dilute this because remember he said, hey, the law is important. In fact, I'm going to step it up for you. It's not just external. You can't even think like this. You can't act like this. So he's upholding that standard for us. So it's not, oh, he's my father anyway. That's not going to change. No, if he truly is your father, then you will be able to actually naturally respond to that reconciliation that Jesus has brought, that effect of the gospel that's on the inside, I can now live like this. And so we have no excuse to say, the Sermon on the Mount is so steep, I can't do it anymore. But if you're someone who's sitting there saying, wait, 
But isn't the whole purpose of keeping all these commandments so that he will become my father? I want to start living like this so he will be my father. That's how I thought in my youth. But that's religion. That's not the gospel. He's reversing this over here. So maybe you're asking yourself, okay, then what's the basis? Because I'm not keeping all these commandments. On what basis then is Jesus saying you can address him as your father? How does that happen? And here's the basis in the Sermon on the Mount. So when you read the Beatitudes, you notice all those characteristics and you realize that's not me. There's only one person I can think of who's like that, that's Jesus. It is clearly a description of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he lived. And then you realize it's not just a description of how he lived, but it is also something that he fulfills. Remember in 5.17 he says, I'm here not just to abolish the law, but I want you to live set apart lives and I will fulfill what you cannot do. So how does he fulfill this? When you think of the Beatitudes, when you think, for example, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He was meek. And at the heart of that, the word meek there is to actually consider others above yourself. But when he was meek, he was rejected by people. But blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit. But he was rejected, so you and I will inherit what we do not deserve, isn't it? He said, blessed are those who are merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. But you realize he was not shown any mercy. Even on the cross, even his own father turns his face away from him. But you and I receive mercy. When he cried out in the garden of Gethsemane and he said, Lord, take this cup from me, but yet I want your will to be done. The actual prayer is, Lord, don't hold this cup away from me. Don't hold off. Please don't be merciful to me so that everybody else would actually receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. He was pure, but yet God's wrath was fully poured on him. But because of that, because he fulfilled it, you and I, as impure as we are, know we will see God. And we've received the righteousness from him. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. He poured out himself as a drink offering. And because of that, you and I never have to say, I'm thirsty, but we're filled with living waters and we can overflow with it being salt and light. And you think of all that and you realize, that's, that's, that's what this is about. But if that's the gospel, does my heart actually respond to what religion is appealing to? Or have I truly understand the weight of what's inside and is that flowing out today or not? Is it still people deciding my emotions and my choices? Or is there something on the inside that's given me freedom to live the way Jesus wants me to? And when people heard this sermon on the mount and as they heard this good shepherd and some rejected him, some were curious and followed him, and they realized this was impossible. They followed him and at some point they realized he goes up another mount, isn't it? He goes up Calvary. And there he actually fulfills it in a sense like how we understand it. So we see, for example, Romans 8.3 coming to pass there. Let me read that for you. What the law, law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened in our sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And therefore, he condemned sin that was in us. And he does that. And so what is he doing over here? He's reversing what your culture and what religion is appealing to. If you do this and if you do this, if you do this, you'll be blessed. But that still might be in your minds because every time something goes wrong, you think it's a punishment. No, you do this and you do this, you'll be accepted by God. No, he's reversing that and saying, he is your father because of what I've done. 
But it doesn't stop there. If he's your father, where's the effect of that rich gospel? Live like this now. Pursue what the Sermon on the Mount says. Why? Because you've got to live like sons of God. And so you think of that and you say, that's the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Because it was atoning work, it's not about externals now. He's done what I cannot do. There's transformation on the inside because this whole thing that I cannot attain is a gift. And I'm able to understand that on the inside and therefore it helps me make my choices on the outside. So keep that in mind and you realize, now Lord, let there be some inward joy and gratitude like you sang in that song and let that shape the choices that I make. Now it's not laws written on a book like it was written on stone tablets, but now where are those laws? He write, the law giver is on the inside. He promises us in Jeremiah 31, 33, that I will write my law in your hearts and in your minds. And so it's on the inside. But if you read the Bible as a set of rules saying, here are things you should do. And when you see people keeping them, you feel like these people will go to heaven and you don't. There's something that still needs fine-tuning in our minds. We want people to keep them around us and we want people to hold those standards for our own lives as well. But that is not the basis. It's got to be this incredible truth that is pushing us to do that. So if you're going to make your choices in a culture that you're in now, primarily about acceptance that you need, that's where the weight of the pressure is in all those external choices, however radical they are. But if the truth of what is already met on the inside by Christ is true, you actually find freedom from that. And it helps you now not get into generational discussions on which culture is better than the other, but you realize, here's how I can make my choices. Here's something I can appreciate, and here's something I can criticize. Every time you hear a voice that condemns you, and people don't relate to you, you can say, but Christ has already pleaded my acceptance before the Father. That's already met, that's already done. And so when we want to live like this, and I'll leave you with this thought, it's not going to be easy, because this is a minority culture, this is contra culture, isn't it, to be salt and light. When you live like that, you realize, oh, there's one thing that I can always anchor my hope on. I want to listen to what you tell me, what your word plants on the inside. That will give us incredible assurance. Like in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice. And then he goes on to say, you know what happens then? You will live with this assurance that culture can never give you, that you are safe and secure on the Father's hand. No one can snatch you from him. You are accepted, you are loved, and you are cherished. So even as you think about this, and even as you sing this last song, ask God to remind you of the assurance that it's not about how well you do, but it's about, like Philippians 3.12, we press on to take hold that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. And that is the precious truth of the gospel that must shape what you do on the outside. So reflect on that and ask the Lord to show you if there are externals that matter to you or whether it is truly the effect of the gospel which is an inside-out transformation. We hope you were encouraged by today's sermon. Please visit our website, cc-dubai.com for more information on Center Church Dubai. If you know someone who will be blessed by this sermon, please share this podcast link so they can stay updated.